Trail. Are you listening? My name is Luke Thomas. This is Monday, January 26, 2015, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, not a lot to get to on today. We'll really just go over one event, and then I'll give you just a couple of news and notes from the rest of the weekend in combat sports. We're going to focus on UFC on Fox 14. It took place at the Tele 2 Arena in Stockholm, Sweden, headlined by Anthony Rubble Johnson. Uh, winning against Alexander Gustafsson. I'll give you a couple of news and notes at the end of the podcast about some stuff that happened in kickboxing, boxing, and jiu-jitsu over the weekend, but we won't really go in-depth into that. We're just going to focus on UFC on Fox 14. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Thomas. and if you have an urgent pressing matter, of course you can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Um, okay, so let's get right into it. UFC on Fox 14. Uh Overall, I want to mention something about the event. Like, I don't know what's happening with Fox, maybe, or I should say UFC and Fox. I don't know if it's, like, coincidental. I don't know if it's a renewed effort. I don't know if it's a renewed effort because of Bellator. I don't know if they've decided collectively this is just something they want to try in 2015. There's probably any number of explanations, or maybe it's just the way things have naturally organically moved. But you just felt with UFC and Fox 14, it was a renewed effort from both parties. You know, I, I, I will never never accuse the UFC of phoning it in because the machine itself is so big and so developed and so complex and capable that even its minimal effort is still pretty good, right? I mean, um, now there can be some matchmaking issues, which we'll get to later on in the podcast, but I just mean... I felt like sometimes in the last couple of years, a lot of events just felt like, hey, let's just put on an event and um, the magnitude of UFC hosting an event will take care of itself. And that's really just not true. It's just not true. You have to do something special. You have to be something special. Now, to UFC's defense, you have to have the right kind of ingredients to do that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and maybe they needed a hometown guy like Gustafsson to do that in a place like Sweden. But um, at least they made use of the effort. I thought the optics of just watching UFC on Fox 14, of just, sorry, I got some stuff in my eye, but of just watching the event from my living room, it had such a big fight feel. And it was a big fight, but. You could imagine if that had been even in a nice arena in America, but an otherwise place that was not of that kind of grandeur, that maybe it wouldn't have done all that well. Maybe it wouldn't have been the same kind of thing. Maybe it wouldn't have had that same kind of grand uh, moment that it did. It was kind of incredible to watch, you know. So the optics were a total hit. The event itself, I would give a, um, you know, two and a half stars. It was a good event. Uh, some great fights. A couple of bits of filler there that were really unfortunate but overall good event the, again on tv it looked fantastic um the ratings were up now they won't go up, up too much because of the short man event and that's you know that's problematic but the overnights were much higher than normal so a couple of things to note here one if they if, if this was a concerted effort to make it look better on tv to have a big fight feel for fox they succeeded it was absolutely that it, it totally delivered on that visual grandeur that not exactly that they're missing when they go to Chicago or when they go to San Jose those are great venues but this one was up another notch this one felt a little bit like a a, a night that you couldn't miss versus a night that had hey here's some great action you should sit down and watch it that's a great pitch too but it's not the same thing so it delivered on that and again whatever those reasons are I have to find out from Fox but uh incredible nonetheless so 
So there's that. Um, fighter of the card, Anthony Johnson. And we'll talk about that when we get to the main event. But I just want to say, say that up front. Here's the ratings. And here are the guy who I think is the fighter of the card. It's for sure and Anthony Johnson. Um, with that said, let's go and break down the fights as they were. So there were two fights on Fight Pass uh, on that night. As I pull up my results page here. So Neil Siri took on Chris Beal. Neil Siri defeated Chris Beal by unanimous decision 29 28, 30 27, and 29 28. Um, 30 27 seems a bit much to me. I thought Chris Beal actually did. Um, I'm okay with 29-28 with Neil Siri. I don't think the, that 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 Beal deserved to win. Let me just say this: so this was Beal cutting down to flyweight and making his debut there. Um, Siri looked fresher the whole fight, but the truth is, I didn't think Beal looked that poor. I thought that he clearly had some issues with the weight cut and clearly had some issues keeping his stamina and his offense at a high enough level to make it count later into the fight. But generally speaking, I thought he looked okay. Um, this was not a fight where I walked away and was like, man, Chris Beal just, you know, this was a this was a failed experiment. He didn't, he, he looked he looked languid in the same kind of way that Aoki did when he first moved to 145. But um, you could tell that he's young enough and still working out some of the kinks enough that um, this could potentially be something if he can really work out properly managing his weight in that cut, that this could be a advantageous move for him. But Siri, showing veteran experience, really just sort of putting on him late, uh, I should say middle and late, um, doing just enough with activity that he was able to make it work. This, by the way, was this is what a UFC opener should look like. Two guys with a lot of ability, one veteran, one young. So the younger guy is probably a little more physical and dynamic of an athlete, and I think that is true in Chris Beal. Yet you have a guy like Neil Siri who's just got a few tricks up his sleeve, never really panics. Um, a lot of well-rehearsed defense for the kind of things he was anticipating, particularly in some of the wrestling exchanges. Um, by the way, great use of an overhook by Neil Siri, And Joe Rogan was talking about it. He would have an overhook on this side. And he would use that on with the opposite leg on the butterfly to cause a lot of problems. But it's a little bit more than that. Slight details. Jiu-Jitsu is all about these really kind of minute details that seemingly don't matter. But if it's just off a little bit, it never works. So he had the overhook. But on that same side, he had a foot and a hip. And that's not the total key either. It was that he had a foot and a hip. And then he had his his knee closed. So the inside of his knee was touching the ribs of Chris Beal. And that makes a difference. Because if you're just floating, they can sometimes... You know, it's not going to hold everything in place exactly, but if you're all tightly crunched on one side and everything is pulling in on one side, you just have a little bit more control. You can sometimes deter them from trying to get out. You can use it for omoplatas if it's already up there and against them. Same thing for arm bars. If you're doing arm bars and you have a foot in the hip and you're using it to push off and turn, you don't want your knee floating to the outside. You want it flush against the body. Everything tight, everything compact, everything where it's supposed to be. So it was a little bit of the two working in tandem, but um, nevertheless, uh, you know, listen, Neil Siri is a good fighter. Uh, not a great fighter, but a very good one. And I just felt like it was a good test for Chris Beal. Didn't pass this time, but there was enough there for me to say, hey, all right, it didn't work for Chris Beal this time, but I do believe I have some optimism for his future at this weight class, and, and he looked pretty good. Uh, let's see. The second fight on UFC Fight Pass was Victor Pesta defeating Konstantin uh, Erikin, Erikin, 29-28, 30-27, 30-27. This was a bit of a disaster. Um, Erikin, if you've never seen him on the uh, uh, regional circuit, he's beaten some decent names. Is just one of these guys who's a powerhouse slugger. I mean, not that he has poor technique exactly, but um, you know, he he sticks to what he's good at, which is just hitting you with jackhammers. 
but it was it was sort of unbelievable to see the rest of his game which is to say there wasn't much at all to the rest of his game not just in jiu-jitsu but no wrestling not much in the clinch to speak of either he either he was trying to punch his way out of the clinch which is like you know i love phil baroni but got phil baroni in a lot of trouble against guys like evan tanner um you know, it just doesn't. There's, 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 there's clinch breaking techniques for a reason. You could probably, you know, throw a couple of rib roasters, but eventually you have to break that clinch in the way that clinchers are supposed to be broken. He wasn't doing that. There were moments where Victor Pesto was going for a single leg, and you could literally see Erican didn't even have a whizzer, didn't try to put the foot on the outside of the body to, to prevent it, wasn't pushing on the head, was just kind of throwing a few like lazy rabbit punches. Even the rabbit punches weren't very hard. It was a disaster. It was a total disaster. Uh, the guy can punch if it's just a striking contest, uh, and at, for MMA purposes, he can blast you into smithereens. Okay, great, but short of that, he has nothing. And the problem is Victor Pesta showed a lot of durability, and I think that's fine. But it wasn't like his skills were amazing. And I don't mean to like, sounds like I'm insulting him. I'm not trying to be insulting, but it's not like what he was doing was like otherworldly. He didn't have to do much to get uh, uh, Eric into the floor. Uh, this was a guy who gassed. This was a guy who wasn't even doing basics to stop anything. This was a guy who had no real guard to speak of. So maybe Pesta has more in his, in his arsenal that he hasn't shown us, and I'll reserve judgment until then. But he beat Eric by just doing, I mean, basic things. These were not things that were, you know, he wasn't doing barambolos. These were not complicated takedown sequences. This was not exotic passing. This was all real bread and butter basic stuff. Uh, and it all worked because the guy had no answer for anything. One note to mention, and I've, I've talked about this in the case of like someone like who's really talented but just didn't have an ability to take a shot, like Jonathan Goulet. A lot of these guys in the regional circuit, um, not in so much... Erican's previous opponents, although to some extent that's true, but what you just find is that sometimes guys get to the highest level because they're great athletes and because they have tremendous technique and because they're just, you know, they're sensational fighters, but built into that, which is kind of hidden in a way, I mean, it's in plain sight, but it's hiding in plain sight, is their ability to take a shot. Like a lot of these guys who get to the highest level, yes, they have great technique and yes, they have, uh, you know, they're great athletes. But they don't get enough credit for the fact that they can take a shot much more than the average guy in the regional scene, uh, even international regional scene, so to speak. Right? Do you see a lot of these guys that take a shot, they just fold. And then some of these guys who get to the UFC, it doesn't work that way. So when you see someone who's got monstrous power, like uh, Erican, he sort of expects guys to go away. If I hit you with this, if I hit you with X, I get a Y result. Doesn't always work that way, does it? All right. So then we move to the preliminary portion of the Fox Sports One card. Uh, Mirsad Bektich defeated Paul Redmond via unanimous decision, 30-27, 30-27, and 30-25. Um, you know, Redmond filling in on late notice, wasn't able to make weight. The, it was a catchweight bout at 149 pounds. Bektich, out of American top team, a, a top prospect, looked fantastic. Um, you know, not getting the finish, I thought was a little bit not great, but nevertheless... Uh, it was a good experience for Bektich. You know, getting three rounds in the UFC octagon, even against a guy who's outmatched, is a valuable thing. Getting that time, having to stick it to somebody. You know, in Redmond's defense, he didn't have a lot of offense, but fairly defensively sound. He didn't get finished. There were moments where he was able to recapture guard or cover up the right way or control posture or at least make Bektich work harder for things than he ordinarily would have. Even when Bektich was able to get him out, he was able to off-balance him a little bit, even though he may have taken a couple shots to the face. So it's these small, tiny things between durability and having some defensive fundamentals and a, and a no-quit attitude that can be really beneficial for 
a guy like Bektich who needs some extra bit of experience in, in, at the highest level. Now, Redmond, I don't think, is you know a world beater, but um, I just mean in that cage, in that octagon, in that scenario, traveling to a show, doing a weight cut, being on a UFC event, um, having that pressure, having that expectation, and still delivering in kind of a great way. Bektich doing everything great, uh, chaining different kinds of takedowns together, pulling guys off the fence, and then changing directions with the clinch to get them to go over the back. That's a great thing I like to see him do. Uh, he was really good at that. Even though he failed a couple times, but got it successful as well. Um, dropped dropped Redmond with a punch and was able to follow up there. Had a game plan, stuck to it. Failed on the same um, leg drag pass that Conor McGregor was able to hit on Dennis Seaver, but that's not a, that's not uh, uh, the biggest knock in the world. I mean, once you're in leg drag, even if they just go flat, you, they just move you into side control. So that's fine. Um, so it looked good there. Um, let's see, didn't make a lot of mistakes, kind of controlled the whole thing from different sort of various, um, on top and passing positions, good incorporation of ground and pound. Um, so yeah, it was a solid performance, not, not an amazing performance, but you know, the kind that's an important building block that he'll look back on, um, uh, as time progresses. Uh, Maribek Tysimov, this was a disaster of a fight, taking on Anthony Christodoulou, knocked him out 38 seconds of the second round. Uh, Anthony Christodoulou has no business being in the UFC. I don't mean to be disparaging. He might be a great guy. Um, he, I know he took the fight on short notice, but he looked completely out of shape, and even if he had been in shape, there was nothing about his technique that sort of showed you there was something more to be uh, gained from him being at this level. And sometimes folks be like, oh, you're insulting this guy, saying he doesn't deserve to be in the UFC. I don't really see it that way. If you're not ready for this level and you try to fight at it, you're going to get hurt real badly. You should look at it as not just quality control for the consumer product, but as human beings, we regulate this for a reason. One, to protect the guys from the damage they can do to each other, but one, I mean, part of the way in which commissions were created in the first place was to protect guys um, in the case of mismatches. Now, I think UFC thought, you know, uh, Chris Tadula was capable of a bit more. Now that they see he's not, I would not like to see him anytime soon. I would like to see him go back to the regional scene and, and work on his game. He can get really hurt. Uh, Mirbek Tysimov did everything right, but at the same time, I've been underwhelmed with him. Um, there's been a lot of hype behind what he's done, and that's great, but I, I've just sort of seen that um, he does have clean technique, but uh, and against an outmatched opposition, obviously he's going to put him away, but this doesn't tell us a whole lot. He did what he was supposed to, and that matters. Um, you know, had great punching combinations, great head movement, great defensive instincts, um, uh, excellent finishing. Um, a lot to look back on and say, wow, this is really fantastic, but against outmatched opposition, you just don't really know what that means. And Chris Dulu, you know, sort of pushing his punches, head in the air, slow movement. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on about what was wrong with that fight. Um, getting tagged clean over and over and over again. And, you know, managed to hang on to the second round, but then got dropped super quickly and then finished off. So, um, this was this is when I say filler on a UFC card. I mean, this just had no business being there. None, zero, whatsoever. Um, uh, terrible fight. I mean, it had a great finish, I suppose, but this is not a fight in keeping with the standard of excellence I think that fans expect from the UFC, and the UFC is traditionally accustomed to delivering. Uh, another one, same thing. Nikita Krylov defeated Stanislav Nedklov. Uh, via submission, via standing guillotine choke. Unless you're Lyoto Machida and you're facing John Jones, if someone loses to a standing guillotine choke, then you sort of automatically know they're probably not very good. There are exceptions that abound, but that's one of those red flag moments. That's like losing in an MMA bout from an Americana or something. Um, you just don't see it because it's easy to defend um, in certain contexts. So, uh, yeah. 
So I, I am, um, I, I just don't know what else to say. I mean, look, I mean, Krylov, you know, he keeps proving me wrong in the sense that he's winning more than I thought he would. But this is a guy who lost to Yvonne Fluchok. Sorry, I got my coffee here. And, and more importantly, did you see when he had the anaconda choke? Locked up. Okay, great. And then if you have an anaconda choke, if you have the bicep on this side and you've locked up the grip on this side, you tuck your head. You don't just roll over to your hip. You actually tuck your head inside the space that you've created there between the armpit and their hip. Their leg might be in the way, but that's why you, you literally tuck your head inside, then you roll. Yeah, You don't just roll to your side. But either way, this is the side you go to. This fool was cranking on the other side. Um, like he had it locked up and was doing this number. It's like, it's, you know, like from a physics standpoint, what does that even mean? Like, what are you doing? You know, uh, and I'm not in a position to be, you know, again, he's never going to call me up and ask me to be in his corner. I understand that. But if I'm able to spot that kind of problem, there's an issue going, going on here. Right. So, uh, Ned Kov just looked slow and out of sorts that he didn't even defend the, the takedown and roll to his back or pick up and get move his body to the other side. I mean, there are defenses for standing guillotines. why you rarely see them at this level. So this is another one of those fights that I just thought was complete filler. Uh, okay, and then the time was at 124 of the first second, by the way. Uh, yeah, I mentioned that before. Okay, move on to uh, hilarious. Maquan Amirkani defeated Andy Ogle, TKO flying knee. To the body and then uh, uh, face and then punches followed up. Eight seconds of the first round. Um, not much to say about this one. Bell rings. Amir Khani comes charging across the octagon. Throws a flying knee. Connects on Andy Ogle. Andy Ogle collapses to the mat but on the, the fences behind him. Because that's how far he came across. Unloaded a series of punches and the referee stepped in and stopped it. Joe Rogan took an issue with it in the broadcast and sort of made a big note about it. Upon replay, there wasn't much that was uh, uh, of dispute to me. I thought it was a good stoppage. Ogle trying to wrestle the referee at the point that the bout was over. Um, the the first punch that the first and second punch that uh, Amir Khani landed or threw, I should say, that landed uh, on Ogle, he had no real response for anything, and it's unfortunate because Ogle had trained at Team Alpha Male, but. Sorry, y'all. I mean, that was just, that was pretty clean. Amir Khani having a great uh, UFC debut. Had an eight-second knockout, won $50,000. Um, was a bit of a hit at the press conference, so keep an eye on that kid. Not much more to say about it than that, though. Uh, Kenny Robertson defeated Sultan Aliyev, Aliyev, they called it, uh, via KO at 242 of the first round. You know, Kenny Robertson's a, uh, an interesting guy. Kenny Robertson was a guy who was a decent wrestler in college, Division One, and and uh, qualified for the national tournament. Never really made any noise beyond that, but um, was a good wrestler. You know, a guy in the gym is definitely going to put you through your paces. I'll put it that way. You get someone at that level of D1, they're going to they're gonna hurt you. Um, but, you know, never really had a resume to speak of exactly. Like, this wasn't a guy that, you know, you're like, oh, you know, who's, a, who's, got, who's an underrated guy? Who's got a resume that people don't look at? And Kenny Robertson would never come up in that, but maybe he should, man. Because Kenny Robertson, first of all, had a brutal knockout in this fight. Uh, Aliyev, you know, I thought there were some red flags. I thought, the, the, you know, being that close with Doug Marshall should not happen. And then you look at the subsequent fights after the Marshall fight in Bellator, he was not fighting anyone of any real note. So there was no real cl clear sense that he had improved. Um, yeah, he looked he looked thinner and more in shape because of the 170-pound weight class versus 185 previously. But uh, that's not really enough to, again, not every weight class change is considered equal. And more importantly, getting back to Robertson, he had a wrestling foundation that was able to take him pretty far. A, uh, you know, a basic skill set, but one of high effectiveness. Um, and now you look at his resume, he's got a brutal knockout, right? 
Um, he's got some decent names on there. Not a big name, but some decent names on there. And he also has a killer submission with that Sulawev stretch he did from back mount. Um, I forgot who he did that on. Uh, that was on Brock Jardine, yeah, that's right, at UFC 157. Uh, he did the Sulawev stretch, you know, uh, named after Amar Sulawev. Um, a, a great, great sort of like notch in his belt is that Kenny Robertson is not particularly thought of as a winner, but or as a killer. But you, know, you look at his resume. Here's who he's beaten: Sultan Aliyev, uh, Ildemar Alcantara, Tiago Perpetuo. Uh, Pearson, I thought he got jobbed against. They beat Brock Jardine. Aaron Simpson was a tough go to begin with. Um, and Mike Pierce, yeah, he lost, but he was still early on in his career then. So, like, he's had a few setbacks. One, I thought he didn't deserve. And, and two, okay, they they were they came a little early in his career. And no shame in losing to, to Simpson and Pierce. But um, yeah, I think he's really sort of turned it around a bit since then. And really sort of developed to a, a nice skill set. His punching, again, I thought was kind of basic. But Kenny Robertson, what's interesting about him is that He's one of these guys who has real awareness about what he's good at and what he's not. And so he's limited in that way because he's never going to use things he doesn't feel comfortable about. But him harping on the fact that he has hands now is not accidental. You know, he understands the distancing now of his punches much better. I think if you go and watch a couple of his old fights, a lot of his punches just sort of missed because they weren't properly, not just aimed off target, but he just didn't have a good sense about when to use things at certain ranges. I think that's really improved. Um, the timing was good. You know, Olive spun on the back kick and never brought his defense back up at the same time. You see a lot of guys, they, when they turn, they do this. Um, he didn't. And, and uh, you know, great presence of mind from Kenny Robertson to uh, see that and connect on it and drop him hard, finish him off quickly. So I don't know where Kenny Robertson is going to go from here, and I don't think he's going to be a world beater, but he deserves a lot more respect than he gets, and, and I think he's a very talented mixed martial artist and deserving of a place in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Uh, Albert Tumanov defeated Nico Musoki uh, via unanimous decision 29-28, 29-28, and then 29-28. This was, in my judgment, in terms of overall on the card, the best fight on the card. Really sensational stuff. Different kinds of styles. I think in the end, cardio played a big role. I think in the end, durability played a big role. I think in the end, uh, mobility played a big role. Uh, Tumanov was just a lot more mobile. Musoki was looking for certain things over and over again and had a great success with them. That middle body kick to the left side uh, was obviously one of his key offensive weapons. But Tumanov was able to be a little more spontaneous, a little more... Um, was able to make better adjustments. So like so like Musoki had a, a plan going in and he stuck to it. And in many ways that's good. But he wasn't ever really able to hit a different phase of the game when Tumanov showed him answers to it, when took away certain weapons. Um, ate a lot of body kicks, was eventually able to negate some of those body kicks by adjusting his range and some of his defense. Um, and when that happened, Musoki didn't have a lot of hands with his, uh, answer with his hands. And so he was able to, uh, and Tumanov, to, to, to blitz him a little bit late, um, to outwork him a little bit late, to stay on his horse a little bit late, to pressure different distances a little bit late. Also of note, Musoki was trying to go for that single leg what did you see from Tumanov? He would break the takedown and immediately create separation. And what does that do? You're going to restart again, restart again, reset again, reset again. It's exactly the sort of thing I talk about when I talk about great takedown defense. Albert, or, uh, yeah, Albert Tumanov having fantastic takedown defense. Really, 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 really good stuff. That's, that is, to me, I won't call it textbook exactly because the takedowns were pretty similar in approach. And you could see, you know, a lot of the times when, when, 
um, Musoki was going for a takedown, look at how arched his back was. You know what I mean? He's just holding on, reaching over. Your, your back should be straight, flat. Um, and his was just sort of bent over, which you could tell he, you, you know, it's not just improper technique, but it doesn't, like, improper technique isn't like someone criticizing you for not having things look as beautiful as they should be. With a takedown like that, we're talking about effectiveness. If your back is rounded, you're not going to have the same pulling power. It physically just doesn't work. You're, you're limiting yourself with that arch. So, so that's why, among many other reasons, why it didn't work. Um, and Tumanov was able to create separation and then restart, reset the position and, and get back to what he was doing. He had great hands, good, good shots down the middle, um, uh, straight punches, uh, punches, and then and having great exits after the fact. Uh, a, a great, great fight, great performance. That's the way you want to end a prelim card. And, um, you know, I liked what Tumanov did, but Tumanov won because he was able to make adjustments later in the fight. It wasn't just that he was fresher. Yes, that mattered. And it wasn't just that he had, um, you know, he was able to take away some of the takedown threat from Musoki. It was that he was able to make some changes to the way which he uh, encountered Musoki striking. Uh, we move to the main card. Four fights on it. Sam Cecilia knocked out Akira Corsani. At uh, 3.26 of the first round, what do you say about this one? Sam Cecilia did what he normally does. Uh, pressured Corsani. I thought that Corsani would weather a storm and then come back and submit him. Didn't happen that way. He took a right hand of death and got put It looked like someone, like Sam looked like he knocked him out because he found out that Akira stole his wallet. It was bad. It was a really bad knockout. Corsani telling Ariel Hawani that um, he might be done in the game, which, you know, if it's for his health, it's a decision that I applaud. Um, yeah, it was bad. I mean, there's really not much to say about this. Cecilia did what he did, and Corsine tried to weather it. They had a similar opponent, which, which, uh, Maximo Blanco, um, and you could sort of take that to think that Akira had a better choice and a better chance because he's, a, uh, Blanco's a bit of a bulldozing wild card, but no, Cecilia has big power and, and leveraged it early to take advantage of a guy who just didn't have the proper defense. There's really not much more than that. Ryan Bader taking on Phil Davis. Uh, split decision, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. Twenty I had it for uh, Phil Davis, 29-28. Um, I thought that it, it was what I thought it was going to be. Phil Davis, like if you watch any football, so this weekend is going to be the Super Bowl. And what does everyone say about the Super Bowl? Well, not everyone. Lo there's lots of criticism about Russell Wilson as a quarterback. And if you don't watch football, just follow me. You probably have heard of Tom Brady. Tom Brady is like this quarterback everyone talks about. I mean, you can know, throwing in tight windows, quick release, stands tall in the pocket, has good arm strength. He has all the things you want in a quarterback. You know, can ability to read defenses and make adjustments, and and doesn't step into uh, to 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 you know stays behind the line of protection, and and all the you know can extend the play with his feet and everything else you say about Tom Brady. They have all these things, right? Um, although not so much the last one, but. Some of those things they say Russell Wilson has, but what they also say about Russell Wilson is that, well, he's a game manager. In other words, he doesn't have all those incredible abilities as a quarterback, but he does have the ability to listen to the plays he's given, execute on them, you know, call timeout when he needs to, read enough of the defenses when he needs to, um, give the ball to the running game when he needs to. In other words, he's there and he can be able to manage things a little bit, but he's not that excellent level of quality from a quarterback, and and now he's able to go far because it's a team sport. In many ways, that's what Phil Davis is. He's a round manager, and he's a fight manager. He doesn't have uh, great takedowns against elite guys. I mean, he's I know that his wrestling is incredible, but a lot of that came from um, 
you know, mat work uh, when he was in college. Um, not so much, you know, these thunderous takedowns where he was able to take down everyone he came, came across. I think that's part of it. The other part is that, you know, yes, he can take down guys at a lower level, but, um, you know, and Glover Teixeira is a higher level, but you know what I mean. Like, um, top five guys he struggles against. Couldn't get down Bader one time. Couldn't get down Anthony Johnson one time. Um, he hasn't fought John Jones, but I have a hard time believing he'd be able to do it. So you get the idea here a little bit. Uh, and if they rematch with Gustafson, I don't know how that would go either, but I suspect Gustafson would fight those takedowns off too. So in any event, uh, and he doesn't have a big punch, doesn't have a big kick, he doesn't have a crazy guillotine out of nowhere. He just kind of manages around. He tries to get in a strike here, get in a strike there, threaten you with a takedown here, off-balance you here. And if he gets you into a takedown battle or he can get behind you, yeah, he can do some things. Um, he's not without any ability, of course. He's a very high-level mixed martial artist, but you get the idea. He manages around. He manages a, a, a fight where he gets a late takedown before the bell, and, and that's how he can sort of collectively you know, get some good wins and beat some good guys. Obviously, some exceptions abound. Um, that didn't do him a lot of favors here. The chipping contest between he and Bader a lot of times didn't go his way. Um, some good leg kicks exchanged, but uh, just not enough. Just not enough. And moreover, I did like, though, that he got picked up and slammed in the third round, and he Granby rolled uh, on his shoulders to uh, sort of negate, not so much the impact, but the overall effectiveness of the technique. He was able to re-scramble out of it as a consequence. So credit to Phil Davis for that. But listen... You fight on the edge like that, where you force your judges to do arithmetic and think through and like what counted more. Sometimes it's going to work out for you. Sometimes it's not. You, if you want to win, decide. I mean, yes, you're, there are robberies that happened, but um, the more you force your judges to do arithmetic of well, he landed two times here and five times there, and he held a takedown for like I don't know, ten or fifteen seconds, something like that. The more you do that the more you risk coming up on the bad end of a decision. I really don't have a problem with Bader winning. I didn't think he won, but fine by me. Uh, and as for Bader, four wins in a row, you know, listen, I don't think he's going to get a title shot because of this, but, like, you look at what's happening in the division. No, he can't beat the best guys, but he's got some decent names on his resume. He's got Phil Davis. He's got Rampage Jackson. Um, you know, uh, who else has he beaten recently? Like, I mean, this is sort of, sort of embarrassing that I can't remember, but um, who are his last four wins? So, Parash, uh, Cavalcanti, Feijal, Ovin St. Pru, and Phil Davis. You know, he's got some decent names on his resume, man. I mean, the Tito Ortiz win's gonna, uh, loss is going to haunt him forever, but otherwise he's doing pretty good. Uh, Gagard Musasi took on Dan Henderson via TKO. He knocked him out at, uh, or stopped the fight anyway, at um, 110 of the first round. Henderson sort of complained. Here's what happened. So, Henderson was trying to jab his way in. Uh, Musasi saw it, backed up straight, and timed him, turned just slightly at an angle uh, to dodge the right hand, threw a right of his own, and it sort of chipped uh, Henderson on the side, slash back of the head. Henderson collapses hard to the mat. You, you, know you know when someone collapses hard when the head yanks back like that, you know, when it just flies back. Um, so he did that. Musasi jumped on him. It wasn't like Musasi landed a bunch of, it's, rain, it's snowing here. It wasn't like Musashi landed a bunch of hard, super amazing punches, but he, Henderson, just looked in bad shape enough that the fight was called. Listen, should the fight have been called? No. I thought that Henderson was getting his base under him. Um, you know, the takedown didn't count because Musashi had laid off at that point. So, so I'm not looking at that necessarily. I just mean Henderson looked really bad falling, but kind of recovered quick too. 
Uh, so I don't agree with the stoppage. But here's what I would say, and I mentioned this on 120 Sports on Saturday night. Dan Henderson isn't just a good fighter, right? I mean, Dan Henderson has a legendary ability to take punishment. Boy, that has been severely compromised. Everyone's like, well, he didn't hit him on the chin. How can you say his chin has been diminished? The chin is, also, is, is two things. One is the physical location. Can you take a shot on the chin? But two, in mixed martial arts, when we speak of the chin, we speak of it almost, in, almost of it in metaphorical terms. We speak of it as, as, as generally one's ability to take a shot. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're like Matt Brown, we have a, you know, sort of a noticeable weakness in taking body shots. Maybe someone doesn't talk about your chin that way. But any kind of shots from the neck on up, man, if you can't take them, um, you know, we got a problem here. And it's not just this fight. It's the Vitor Belfort fight. It is the Shogun fight, the second one that he wants. Now this one. Um, I think he's lost five of his last six. The dude has trouble taking a shot. And that should be, the, like, that shouldn't be a surprise. He's 44. Why would you ever imagine someone who's been in athletics this long, who has probably had a fair amount of concussions from, from wrestling at the level that he did, and then all the stuff in MMA, it's supposed to be like this. It's, this is perfectly normal in some way, right? You can't have that, that legendary chin forever, man. It's just going to go. So um, I don't know what's going to happen with Dan Henderson, but I, and I understand, I, I think he has a legitimate gripe about he, did he show intelligent defense getting back up? Was he so badly gone that he wasn't able to show that? No, I don't think you can make that case. But at the same time, it's like, dude, it looked bad for him. It looked bad for him. He's just... He looks like uh, it looks like Couture later end Couture. Everyone's like it looked like later end Chuck Liddell. Hmm? More to me like later end Couture, where he wasn't quite out from the shot, but just you know you nick a guy and he's it's like a hemophiliac. They just started bleeding. Uh, main event: Anthony Johnson defeated Alexander Gustafsson via TKO at 2:15 of the first round. People talked about the headbutt. Both fighters seemed to suggest it didn't matter that much. We'll have to take him at their word. The headbutt and video doesn't look great, uh, so I can understand some people having some skepticism about it. But here's the point that you need to walk away with Anthony Johnson. First of all, his power early is incredible. I mean, I, I, I called it fight-altering, crippling power is what he has. I think his power would translate at heavyweight, to be perfectly honest. I mean, if he's doing this to light heavyweights, why would heavyweights not suffer from his wrath? And, and he's faster than them, by the way. And, by the way, he fought at heavyweight when he was in World Series of Fighting. So, um, something to consider. Two. Uh, his hand speed. Because what was amazing about the punch was what he was doing was he was timing the kick. So if someone tries to kick you in the leg or the body on this side, this side comes as the counter. Yeah. Um, he didn't come with a straight punch down the middle. He came with like a like a winging overhand hook kind of punch. And you watch the replay; it's hard to see it because it's so fast. It's so fast. So I thought that Gustafson would be able to better manage the distance. But the reality is, and I'm not saying Jones can't, but the reality is his ability to cover distance with his hand speed early, which we don't know about late, but early, good luck. Good luck because you're going to need it. Unbelievable power matched with insane hand speed for this weight class. Um, you know, you look at him in light heavyweight and you wonder, what took you so long to get there? Um, the fight got stopped late. I understand why I got stopped late because Mark Goddard was trying to give uh, Gustafson every chance to win, and and I understand if you think it went too long. I think it went too long too. Um, I'm sympathetic to what Goddard was trying to do, but I agree it could have been stopped earlier. Uh, Gustafson, you know, showing great resilience, even landing a couple of hard shots on Johnson as Johnson pursued, but the power was just too much. The finishing ability of Johnson was just too much. Getting that tight waist and just unloading on him. 
uh, you know, really sensational stuff from, from Anthony Johnson uh, in that particular way. Not a lot of wrestling on the main card. Not a lot of jiu-jitsu on the main card. Um, yeah, just not a lot to speak of there. Uh, but uh, some decent action. By the way, the gate, 3.1 million, and the announced attendance was 30,000 or just shy of 30,000. I think somewhere between 26,000 and 30,000. They said that there were uh, 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 people buying tickets as the main event was going live, and it was going live at like 4 a.m. in Sweden, so um, consider that for what it's worth. So let's quickly go over news and notes from the rest of the weekend in combat sports. Um, on HBO, on Saturday Night Boxing After Dark, there was the rematch at the First Bank Center in Broomfield, Colorado, just outside Denver, between Mike Alvarado and Brandon Rios. Uh, this was a disaster for Mike Alvarado. He had been arrested previously on gun charges, I think, early in the month. So I think January 3rd, so he had probably had that on his mind. He mentioned in the post-fight interview that he didn't train properly, either for that reason or others. Um, he looked like garbage from the beginning. He got tuned up by Brandon Rios. Um, it was a it was a show. Rios, I mean, it's hard to even break down the fight because Rios did, like, anything and everything he wanted to. Anyway, dropped him in the third round. He got up but couldn't answer the bell after the third, so so that was that. Uh, terrible showing. Brandon Rios um, still has a bit of a life left in him for a guy who's also taken a fair amount of shots in his career, but um, came up on the better end of this trilogy. Uh, in kickboxing, Giorgio Petrosian got back to work, looked good against uh, Erkan Varal. He's some sort of Turk, if I mispronounce his name, please apologize. Um, winning unanimous decision. The fight is up on liverkick.com, so check that out. And then last but not least, there was the European BJJ Championships. A couple of news and notes about that. Uh, Andre Galvan won the open class, submitted his way all the way to the top in the main event, or the finals, I should say. Uh, Igor uh, Silva, I think is who he faced, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he had a rib injury as I was watching. He had to, the, the match was stopped once and then it restarted, and he, I think he verbally submitted at the end because uh, Galvan went knee on belly and sort of on his ribs, and, and he had to call it a day. But he submitted everyone all the way up to there. Also won his weight class, um, so he was a two- Division winner there. Uh, Mackenzie Dern nearly won the Open uh, against uh, Gabby Garcia in an incredible match. I mean, Gabby Garcia is twice the size. Uh, Mackenzie Dern had a push-elbow escape, uh, reversal I should say, reversed her, took her back, and nearly had an arm bar. Uh, but, you know, Gabby Garcia just too big and too technical to in her defense and turned it around, so Gabby Garcia won that. I think Dern also lost in her weight class to Michelle Nicolini. Uh, as well. So I had a bit of a tough go, two silvers, but pretty strong performances either way. Um, and of course, Gabby Garcia won the Open, and I believe Paulo Miao won his division as well. But check out Gracie Mag for all the results there. Uh, this weekend is, of course, UFC 183. So we'll have more to talk about after that on next weekend's podcast. Email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, and uh, I'll put up a graphic on other ways you can get in touch with me until then uh enjoy the fights see you guys next time